2018 You need to be seen It's time to come to the aid of America In 2018 Be part of the team It's time to come to the aid of America Go to the polls and cast your vote Welcome to your voting guide by the League of Women Voters This is Vivian Hart And I will be your host On behalf of the League of Women Voters of Greater Tucson the League is a nonpartisan organization, which means that we do not support any political party or candidate. However, we do encourage everyone who's a citizen to be informed about and active in our government. Our goal with this program is to present unbiased information about the candidates, the issues, and our voting process relating to the upcoming midterm election on November 6th. We are delighted that you've joined us today. We're going to be interviewing two candidates for office. The first one is Mark Manoil, who's running for state treasurer, and the second is Bill Pierce, who's running for mine inspector. Now, I do want to tell you that we contacted Kimberly Yee, the other candidate for state treasurer, and she did not respond to any of our contacts. We attempted to make arrangements uh, for day and time with Joe Hart, the other candidate for mine inspector, and he did not respond so that we could come upon a time that worked for both of us. The state treasurer protects, manages, and invests taxpayer money. Safe investing of public funds is the number one priority. The treasurer has approximately $15 billion under management and stewards the cash management of Arizona's $40 billion state budget. Money comes into the treasury through state and local taxes and fees paid by Arizonans and through the sale of state-owned land. These assets are entrusted to the treasurer as the state's investment officer and advisor. The treasury invests assets in high-quality fixed income and equity products. The office monitors markets and works to maximize the state's return on investment without compromising safety. All the while, the treasurer maintains liquidity to meet cash flows. The state treasurer helps state agencies facilitate withdrawals of assets assigned to them and distributes assets to local governments, public schools, and other entities as required by state law. The state treasurer also serves as Arizona's chief banker. While not a bank itself, the treasurer's office directs all state banking services and must authorize payments and balance accounts. As a protection for taxpayer money, the state treasurer maintains a separate accounting system to provide a check and balance on the state accounting system and distributes investment earnings to the proper funds. The Treasury contracts with Arizona banks to process the state's receipts and disbursements, handle money and security transfers, report to the state's accounts, balances, and payment activities, and provide related banking services such as data processing. I am with Mark Manoil, who is running for state treasurer. Welcome, Mr. Manoil. Good afternoon, Vivian. How are you? I'm doing very well. So the first question I have is, why are you uniquely qualified to be Arizona's state treasurer? Well, you could say I'm heavily invested in Arizona. 
I'm a fourth generation Arizonan and my family's roots go back to territorial days in the Phoenix area. I am a product of Arizona public schools and have sent my children to public school. I'm a lawyer and a small business owner with a with a master's of business administration degree. And for close to the last three decades, uh, I've been focused as a lawyer in enforcing property taxes in Arizona. And in fact, I've written the only legal reference book on that subject. The tax and fiscal policies in our state have, in my opinion, been on the wrong track for too long. And I think the treasurer's office can serve a constructive role in getting us back on the right track. I'm committed to help restore opportunity and restore integrity to Arizona. What changes would you make? And what would you keep the same in the state treasurer's office if you're elected? Well, stepping back for just a second, I I think our founders gave us a constitution that made the treasurer an independent executive to act, uh, not just as a bookkeeper for the state, but uh, as a check on establishment excesses. And, and it's been more than 50 years since a Democrat was elected to this state office. In fact, the last one was elected in 1964. So the treasurer's office has sort of let politicians get away with bad budgets and self-dealing, especially in the last uh, 26, 27 years. And I I think that instead of having people who take the office and go along to get along and improve their political uh, their political potential, uh, we need somebody who's actually very committed to the here and now as well as to the benefits that future Arizonans are looking for out of living in our state. So, getting back to your question, what changes would I make? I have two principal proposals that that I really want to work on that I think could benefit the state. And and we'll talk about this more, I'm sure, in the course of your questioning. But but one is in developing our community banking infrastructure in our state that provides basic uh, banking services to individuals in rural areas where many of them have lost those services because of big bank consolidation. Uh, and the other is actually taking a very active role in revisiting the voters' decision back in 1992 that amended our Constitution to essentially put a a medieval type of torture tool attachment to any kind of revenue raising uh, in our state Constitution. And that, I think, is the reason we're seeing 65 to 75,000 people marching on the Capitol for public school funding. What do you see as the one to two most critical issues that need to be addressed in this position? You may have already talked about some of it, but if there is anything else, add to it, please. Thank you. Yeah, it doesn't hurt to restate that the principal job is sound management and preservation of taxpayer assets. But I I think the, the added dimension to this job is planning to accommodate the future needs of our state's residents. That has to be a high priority. What impact to Arizona's state tax income do you foresee as a result of the recently enacted federal tax reform? And if it results in a decrease in the amount of tax collected, what measures will you advocate for to make up any shortfall? Vivian, I'm a proponent for restoring 
necessary legislative power to our state legislature. And you may see this response as somewhat of a dodge to your question. But I think that regardless of whether I perceive this being a boon to the state or a bust to the state, I think what I hope we can get your listeners to focus on is the importance of having a legislature with the necessary legislative power to respond to circumstances that arise from external external threats to the state and, and opportunities that arise. And right now, we don't have that. Uh, you know, right now, the legislature has the simple majority vote power to lower taxes and eliminate taxes, to create vouchers and to create tax exemptions or cut tax rates. But to reverse any of those things requires a supermajority vote based on that 1992 constitutional amendment. Mm -hmm. So if there is a gigantic tax cut, say a $520 million corporate income tax cut, which our legislature did uh, back in, I think, 2010 or 2011, that can't be reversed by by a decision that this was a bad idea. It didn't really benefit our state. It just cut half a billion dollars out of our operating budget. Instead, um, it's going to require a two-thirds vote in both houses of the legislature plus the governor's signature to backtrack. And the current leadership has shown no, no desire to restore funding even as it existed 10 years ago in 2008, much less recognize this 1992 constitutional amendment as sort of the core of the problem. This is Vivian Hart with the League of Women Voters. I'm speaking with Mark Manoil, and he is running for state treasurer. What changes, if any, should be made to how and where the state invests its monies to obtain the best returns but also maintain the safety of those funds? Vivian, it's it's an interesting question because it reminds us of Econ 101, where we learned about the relationship of high risk and high return. And in fact, in past years in Arizona, the investment standards were lowered by our state legislature to allow investment by the treasurer in higher risk, higher return securities. And I think that there is a better way to approach this uh, through the development of our community banking infrastructure in our state. And this is not a new idea. It's not a crazy idea. It's an idea that has been around for about 100 years in the state of North Dakota. And actually, many other states now are looking at it because of its success there. And I want Arizona to be one of those states. But the general idea is that the state uses some of the taxpayer assets rather than entrusting them all to Wall Street bankers, which is our current model, um, to to invest some of them through a, a local banks and to enhance credit, credit availability locally um, throughout the state. Uh, and, and that can result in two good things. One is a lower interest rate for borrowers locally, and second being a higher rate of return on the state's money going through that system than it would get from those Wall Street bankers mm. with, with, with no substantial increase in risk. One of the duties of the treasurer is to protect 
taxpayer money. So first of all, what is your interpretation of that duty? And secondly, how do you intend to carry out that duty? Well, I, I think that protecting, protecting taxpayer money is a, an essential part of the job. It requires responsible local investment and the creation of a fairer and more stable tax system. Uh, as you probably know, Arizona has veered way off into the direction of reliance on sales tax revenue and uh, re- reduced its, resp- its reliance on income taxes and property taxes, which have historically have been the other legs of the revenue stool. And, and because of the Proposition 108, the 1992 constitutional amendment I referred to earlier, um, our state's credit rating was actually lowered back in 2009 uh, in part because of a, a supposed inability to raise revenue. I didn't know it that. Required, yeah. So uh, so that that Prop 108 uh, has, has really kind of put the shackles on our state, and, um, and it impacts in a very negative way uh, the opportunities that we kind of expect to have, the opportunities, say, that, that come from uh, a strong public education system. You know, that's one of the key ones, so key, key uh, avenue to personal growth. Uh, but in our, in our economic environment over the last 10 years, going back to the consolidation of the big banks, uh, we also see credit availability for entrepreneurs kind of uh, uh, shrinking. And so that uh, banks will give you a loan as long as you come in and the first loan you ask for is, say, 100000 or a quarter of a million dollars, which is way beyond what most startup entre- entrepreneurs are looking for. I think that protecting taxpayer money in our current environment means putting it to work to help our state's residents and actually recognizing the value of human capital and maximizing that in Arizona. Mm-hmm. A yes vote on Proposition 126 will prohibit the state government from increasing taxes on services in the future. So first of all, what types of services does the proposition mean? What does it cover? And secondly, what is your position on the proposition? As I understand it, the the uh, proposition would prevent taxation of professional services, which have been exempt from taxation for a long time. In fact, most services have been exempt from taxation and are now, uh, but not just professional services like uh, legal and medical services, but uh, getting your hair cut, you know, the, the cosmetology services, mm-hmm. um, other other real basic things like that. One of the illustrations that uh, has been used of of in discussing this is movie watching. Have you heard about that? I haven't. Well, it used to be that you would go to your your um, blockbuster or maybe rent a movie or um, go to a store and buy a DVD, and you would pay a sales tax when you bought that DVD. But when you subscribe to Netflix now, because technology is moving us away from goods to services as the primary um, primary platform for economic exchange, uh, you don't pay taxes on the Netflix movie that you watched. And uh, and I think just as 
Prop 108 that I've referred to a couple of times was a burden in the long run to our state. Having Restricting sales taxes on services just removes the option for a legislature doing its job uh, to, to look at different areas of services that it might think are appropriate to tax because the goods type of transactions have completely disappeared or, mm-hmm. or gone away. So I, I do not support Prop 126. In fact, I'm emphatically against it. I understand. I get Netflix, and I don't pay taxes on it. You're right. You know, there's a there's a lot of fear-based campaigning, which I guess is not a surprise, <laughs> that says if you don't vote for this, then all of these things will become taxed next year. You know, and mm-hmm. that's just not the case. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the fear-based campaigning. Uh, the thing that that I advocate for is having suppleness and uh, and uh, a range of motion and options for our state legislators so that they can govern responsibly. But when we we start erecting walls about what they can and cannot do, uh, we get some perverse outcomes. And and anybody paying attention in the last five or ten years should know what I'm talking about. Are you in favor of eliminating the vehicle licensing tax exemption for alternative fuel vehicles? And if yes, why? If no, why not? You know, I, I, I'm glad you asked that question. It's a, it's a tough one for me because I'm generally against tax spending as long as Prop 108 is there. Tax spending, like I said before, is creating exemptions like this tax exemption or creating vouchers or tax cuts. Uh, and I, I would probably say yes if it were anything else. But I also consider uh, climate change to be an existential threat to to our survival on this planet, not just our livelihoods as Arizonans. And and for that reason, I would actually not want to discontinue that exemption as long as we have uh, essentially bad public policy in Washington favoring fossil fuel development and expansion, which I don't think is the right course for us. I want to thank you very much, Mr. Manoil. I appreciate you speaking with me today. Thank you. appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you and have your and your listeners' attention. I've learned a lot. Oh, good. <laughs> I've, been speaking, I've been speaking with Mark Manoil, and he is running for state treasurer. I'm going to describe for you the role of the Arizona Mine Inspector. The mine inspector shall inspect at least once every three months every active underground mine in the state employing 50 or more persons and at least once a year every other mine. The inspector shall inspect the operation, conditions, safety appliances, machinery, equipment, sanitation and ventilation, the means of ingress and egress, the means taken to protect the lives, health, and safety of the miners, the cause of accidents and deaths occurring at the mine, and the means taken to comply with the provisions of this title. The mine inspector may enter and inspect any abandoned or inactive mine to determine whether any dangerous condition exists which may affect the health and safety of the general public. The inspector at any time may enter examine and inspect any mine or part of any mine, and inspect any connected plant or equipment or any part of the workings of the mine. 
On notification of suspension or termination of mining operations, the inspector shall inspect the property to determine if adequate safety measures are being taken to protect the public. When the inspector receives a complaint in writing signed by a person employed in an operation, stating that the operation in which he is working or part of is being operated contrary to law or is dangerous to the health or lives of the persons employed therein, and setting forth when the danger was first observed, the inspector shall examine the operation as soon as possible. The name of the person making the complaint shall not be disclosed by the inspector unless permission is expressly granted by the person. The complaint shall be indexed and filed by the inspector. The inspector may enter on such land to inspect for dangerous conditions which may present a health and safety hazard to the public. If hazards exist, the inspector may erect warning signs across or near the entrance of any mine shaft, portal, pit, or other mine opening, prohibiting the entry of unauthorized persons or erect other protective devices as necessary. I have with me today Bill Pierce, who is the Democratic candidate for mine inspector. Thank you very much for being with me today, Mr. Pierce. Good to be here. So tell me this, why are you uniquely qualified to be the mine inspector of our state? Well, I'm a retired engineer with over 40 years in the engineering industry. I've been certified through MSHA, which is the Mining Safety and Health Administration. That's the mine version of OSHA. I've also been certified through OSHA with uh, endorsements for subsurface and fine spaces. I've also been uh, trained by the Environmental Protection Agency on erosion control and groundwater protection. And I'm licensed by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission as a radiation safety officer. And uh, since we do do uranium mining in Arizona, that is radioactive, I feel that that's a very needed plus. What changes would you make, and what would you keep the same in the operation of the Mine Inspector Office if you're elected? Well, there's not too many changes we can make. What I'd like to do, though, is try to increase the number of inspectors that we have. Uh, we have over 400 active mines in Arizona. We're also responsible for uh, locating and securing the abandoned mines in Arizona. We have uh, over 1,500 known unsecured abandoned mines, plus untold numbers that we haven't even found yet. And we have a total of four inspectors. So we definitely need to figure a way of getting increased funding into the office and add to the number of inspectors we have because a couple of them are getting close to retirement age and when they do retire we're going to need somebody to uh, be able to be trained uh, who have already been trained and can move into their uh, positions. What do you see as the one or two most critical issues that need to be addressed in this position? Right now one of the most critical issues is uh, preserving the Grand Canyon. There have been over 8,000 uh, mining claims have been let out under the Trump administration uh, for, for mining operations in the Grand Canyon region. Uh, many of those are for uranium mining, and that's an area where one spill, you're going to destroy the entire Grand Canyon region for millions of years. We have U-235, which is the most common form of uranium, uh, and it's mostly in northern Arizona and up around the Grand Canyon area. 
and, that, and it's water soluble. It's reactive to oxygen. If you one one spill into the Colorado River, you're going to lose the water, drinking water for upwards of 40 million people in Arizona, Southern Nevada, most of California, and down into Mexico, where the Colorado River ultimately flows to. Uh, and it has a half-life of 140 million years. You'll never clean it out of the water. So it's just, that'll, that'll be destroyed forever. We're talking with Bill Pierce, who is the Democratic candidate for mine inspector for our state. As the mine inspector, how would you ensure that you inspect mines with 50-plus employees four times a year, as required, and those with less than 50 employees once a year? Well, to begin with, with the number of inspectors we currently have, it's not possible to keep up that uh, that pace. We need the more more inspectors because also any underground mine uh, doesn't matter how many uh, people employed in the mine. All underground mines are also required to be inspected quarterly, and with the with the budget cuts and the fewer few inspectors that we have. It's a physical impossibility to keep up with the uh, number of mines we have now. We've got to push for more funding into the office. What would you do if a mine attempted to hide an incident that was dangerous to its employees? Well, that has already happened, and uh, they were cited and fined uh, last year, and that was a, uh, a uranium mine on the south rim of the Grand Canyon. They did... Uh, failed to report an incident as required by law, and when the inspectors found out about it and they inspected the mine, they also discovered that they failed to uh, preserve any evidence of the incident. Uh, so they were issued two citations with fines. I just think the fines are totally inadequate, and uh, they'd, uh, I would have fined them pretty heavily, so at least the uh, stockholders would wake up too on that one and say, hey, don't do that again. Plus, mm -hmm. I would also, depending on... Uh, on how serious it turned out the situation was, we have to notify the people around it if any of them were, in, uh, were affected. I see. What would you do to ensure that abandoned mines are secured and safe for the public and the environment? One of the things that I would like to try to do is uh, work with different, uh, different outdoor groups uh, to help locate them and like uh, take the Sierra Club and the off-roaders. Normally those two groups are quite often at odds with one another, but in a situation like this where they work together, send us the, if they find one that we have don't know about, they can send us the GPS coordinates from their smartphone to, uh, to the office and we'll get somebody out there as quickly as we can to at least uh, get some signs up or something up around it to warn people until we can fully secure it. I'm speaking with Bill Pierce, who's running for a mine inspector in the state of Arizona. Now, you already mentioned about uranium, how uranium is water-soluble. It takes hundreds of years to degrade, and but as we know, it is also a lucrative business. So mining for uranium on federal lands is currently under a moratorium. What is your opinion of lifting the moratorium of uranium mining on federal lands? Well, the current moratorium is in the uh, watershed region of the uh, Grand Canyon. Uh, and the biggest problem there is we have what's called, what are called cones. They're unusual rock formations that fill and, uh, fill with water from time to time and then the water drains out. The water 
it doesn't follow any normal patterns of normal water flow. And hydrologists have never been able to get into that to uh, to study what it's doing, where it goes, and where it comes from. So a leak of uranium into that will destroy the water, and we've already uh, seen what has happened on the Navajo Reservation with abandoned uranium mines and the uranium uh, waste leaching into their water supply. They, that's why the Navajo Nation has so has to haul drinking water from Flagstaff because. We've got 592 abandoned uranium mines on the reservation itself, and this leaks into their water, and so their water is not safe to drink. And with a 140 million year half-life, you'll never get it out of the water if it ever gets into it. Plus, with it being water-soluble and reactive to oxygen, as it starts breaking down in the water, the uranium starts forming radon gas, which is also a known carcinogen. I know also that miners uh, can get diseases and cancers from mining the uranium. So how can miners be protected from the dangers of mining uranium? Well, for one thing, they have to would have to use uh, almost like a full turnout equipment, uh, like you would use in an EPA Superfund cleanup site with supplied oxygen, because. As I mentioned, with the uranium being water-soluble, as you inhale it and breathe it in, it starts forming the radon gas inside the lungs and leads to lung cancer. There were studies uh, shown uh, during the Cold War era that when the uh, uranium mining was going on on the uh, reservation, they were using a lot of Native Americans uh, to do the mining, and the average onset age of lung cancer on the reservation at that time was 44 years, one month. That's all traced back to the uranium dust exposure. Um, the average onset age for a chain smoker, for instance, was 65 years, five months. So smoking is better for you than working in a uranium mine. And Native Americans were not given any kind of respirators or any uh, protective gear at the time either. So. We did have to pay out, the government did pay out millions of dollars in settlements uh, for some of the diseases, and uh, they're still having a lot of problems on the reservation today with uh, because of the abandoned uranium mines, because uranium also causes genetic mutations and leads to birth defects on top of everything else. So how can the environment and the public be protected from the dangers of mining and also the uranium tailings, which is the debris left over after it's been mined. First off, they're going to have to make sure that the mining companies are required to clean up everything after they're done. You know, everybody has heard of Three Mile Island, for instance, a nuclear power plant in Pennsylvania that had a meltdown. But not many people have ever heard of Church Rock, New Mexico, which was actually the largest radiation spill in U.S. history. That was a tailings pond from an abandoned uranium mine, Church Rock, New Mexico, in 1979. I believe it was July the 16th. The dike around the tailings pond let loose, dumped some 90 million gallons of radioactive sludge into the Rio Florido River, and it flowed down the river and it flowed into Navajo County, Arizona, for a distance of some 90 miles. That was the largest radiation spill in U.S. history, and that still has never been fully cleaned up and probably never will be because of the nature of the uranium itself. And, of course, we have many copper mines in Arizona, too. 
What would you do to ensure the safety of these mines for the workers, for the public, and the environment? Well, the copper, it isn't, the tailings aren't quite as dangerous. Uh, and, in fact, I supervised the construction of an EPA-compliant uh, leaching pad for the copper mine up at Safford when it was uh, still owned by Phelps Dodge a number of years ago. Uh, those On those, they are now make sure that they are properly lined, have the proper, you know, the proper amount of clay underneath them, the proper amount of uh, liner on top of the clay, and filtering, uh, because the clay in them, that will any, help filter any seepage and uh, catch the, because uh, they use sulfuric acid for the, for the leaching on that, so that has to be monitored to make sure that that doesn't get through. Also, watching the mines, you know, making sure the equipment is not malfunctioning, the guards are in place over chains, belts, and that type of thing. Uh, make sure that the, since most of the mines in Arizona are open pit, make sure everybody in and around the pits are aware and have had the uh, pit driving training. Uh, a year ago, there was one of the copper mines down between uh, here and Tucson. Uh, a miner got run over by a mine truck. And he got run over in his pickup trucks. It turned out that he, it was the miner's fault that he got out onto the haul roads in front of the pickup truck where he shouldn't have been. And, uh, you know, he, uh, needless to say, he, he, he was killed in that accident. You just have to make sure that people are aware of their surroundings and that, uh, we make sure that the, the, uh, mines are inspected properly and that all the safety regulations that are, in place are there, or all the yeah, all the regulations that we have to follow are are being followed. I have one more question for you. I'm speaking with Bill Pierce, who's running for a mine inspector. This last question: Why should people vote for you? Well, I think uh, part of it is my overall experience. Uh, I've got over 40 years, like I said, in the engineering industry, actually 44 years, five months. Uh, a lot of that has been spent in and around mining operations for the heavy, uh, dealing with heavy construction industry and mining. Uh, the certifications that I've held, the, uh, uh, just the ones that I listed earlier, they're the only ones that really are really pertain to mining operations, but there have been a number of other certifications. So I've been extremely active in the industry for over 40 years and have been a, uh, have held an instructor rating. I've trained new employees, and you know, so it's things like that that uh, I think gives me the edge. Mr. Pierce, I thank you very much for being with us today. I appreciate you speaking with us, taking the time to let our listeners know about the kinds of things you would do as the mine inspector. You're very welcome. It's been, uh, it's been an interesting uh, conversation. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you have learned something new about the statewide candidates. Today I've been speaking with Mark Manoil, one of the candidates for state treasurer, and Bill Pierce, one of the candidates for Mine Inspector. Now, I do want to tell you that we contacted Kimberly Yee, the other candidate for state treasurer, and she did not respond to any of our contacts. We attempted to make arrangements uh, for day and time with Joe Hart, the other candidate for Mine Inspector, and he did not respond so that we could come upon a time that worked for both of us. 
You've been listening to Your Voting Guide by the League of Women Voters on KXCI 91.3 FM. All episodes of this series are on kxci.org after they have been broadcast. This show is recorded and produced by Amanda Schager. You can learn more about the League of Women Voters at lwvgt.org. Please join us next time, and we'll cover more important election information. Bye-bye.